as always, I am Matthew Hart, CEO for Longwoods and producers of these talks. Um, one of my favorites and a seasoned veteran will be joining us today. Uh, Matt will happily tell you that he was the first speaker at breakfast, and he will also tell you that he thought that these were going to be an absolute failure. But uh, years later, here we are, and Matt is maybe speaking for, I didn't check, the third or fourth time now, maybe more. Um, and uh, we're also joined by Dirk, who will be making his first appearance, and hopefully not his last. Uh, before we get started, I would like to acknowledge that uh, these events um, do have support, and uh, supporting today's event, we have Healthcare Excellence Canada with uh, Kim Kinder is here today, uh, Jim Shave from Cerner, uh, Catherine Galton from Hiroc, Neil Fraser from Medtronic, uh, Britta Cupra from Philips, Francois Dorlet from Roche, uh, Ankit Dio from Workday, and that is it for me. So enjoy the discussion. Matt, Dirk, it's all yours. Thank you very much and good morning, everybody. Thanks so much for attending today. And, uh, you know, two years ago, I never would have thought first and foremost that I would ever be sitting beside Matthew Anderson, the CEO and president of Ontario Health. It's an honor and a pleasure to, all joking aside, it's, it's, it's a great um, benefit of the tragic two years that we've been involved with. And secondarily, no way that I thought we would be so easily gathering so many people together um, across Ontario and nationally. And what you can't see, you can see that I'm sitting in a hotel room potentially, but you can't see that I'm in Sault Ste. Marie. And to be able to do this talk um, virtually with everybody, I think is just fantastic and, and speaks to one of the, the again, um, changes that we've made that we'll likely uh, maintain. Now, I'm in Sault Ste. Marie because I'm meeting with elders, First Nation elders, to help to inform a collaborative transformation of the Office of the Chief Coroner approach to the review of child and youth deaths. And while I've stepped away from the meeting um, with the elders, I've not stepped away from the topic that we're going to discuss today. The, the impact over the past two day or the day and a half meeting that I've had with them, um, and I have another afternoon today of substance use, is so far and wide and so far reaching and clearly is so impactful in our discussion around children and youth. Um, parents, youth, children, families, communities all suffer leading to the loss of families, employment, happiness, and most tragically, life. While I spent yesterday, I want, I want to uh, take, take a moment to reflect on where I spent yesterday. I was in Garden River First Nation and it was a real honor to be welcomed into their nation. And uh, we were in a, a longhouse. So we uh, went back to the earth. Uh, there was a drum ceremony and it really uh, causes me and helps me to reflect on the long, long uh, time frame that our uh, indigenous people have lived in Canada and, uh, and acknowledge their, their, um, their com commitment, their contribution, and frankly, their leadership over the years. Um, so I, I will be going back to meet with them further. And, uh, and again, thanks for attending today. When we think about substance-related harm, it's, it's so widespread. And I suspect there's nobody on this call that hasn't been touched or affected. And I know there's many who provide uh, frontline or, or uh, direct service to those who are suffering from the harm. In the past, I used to resist the word crisis as in my view, opioid-related harm has been an ongoing and significant public health issue for many years. But what we have now is an escalating overdose crisis that is so significant 
that it's impacting our life expectancy in Canada and the life expectancy um, estimates in the US of A. Now, important, looking at the title, you'll see a public health emergency, recognize that neither Matt or I are public health experts, and we're not proposing a solution. We're proposing and or we want to share some of our observations and we want to talk about the seriousness of this issue. Many of you know that, but we wanted to talk about some of the recent numbers that occurred during the pandemic. And then our observations of how the Ontario healthcare system came together to tackle a serious public health problem. And you know that is COVID. And to allow you and, and those who are leading health systems to determine how everyone can pull together and apply the experience to reduce the tragedy and loss associated with substance use. We as a province, specifically in the healthcare system, came together in responding to COVID-19. We did things that were previously believed to be unattainable, definitely not in the timeframe that was brought forward. And Matt's gonna explore some of those things and illustrate some of the work that was done. So if I can move on to slide two, I think, it just is so important for all of us. Again, I'm reiterating, but I think so important to recognize the magnitude of opioid, how, how immense uh, opioid-related harm is. Mortality is, is significant, but we can't forget the morbidity as well. Like the number of deaths is tragic, but the number of people that are suffering illness and, and other impacts is even greater. And, uh, and that brings me back to the conversations that I had yesterday and the night before with the elders where many, many times the topic of the child and youth challenges and the child and youth deaths uh, circle back to unfortunately uh, substance related harm. And so I want to acknowledge all of the families. We talk about data, we talk about numbers, we talk about all of this, but that's an individual. Each person is an individual who died and each person uh, brings their voice together to this conversation in the numbers to be able to uh, hopefully speak more loudly, bring the message more poignantly and really help us to all think about how important this is. Um, and, and anyone who's on the call who have lost friends, families, patients, clients that uh, are, are feeling uh, sadness, so we all should. We should all share in that sadness. We should all share in the recognition of the tragedy and we need to learn and, and do what we can. We've heard from those who are in the front line, those who are providing services, those who are receiving services, those who are suffering, that in fact, uh, why can't we do what happened with the pandemic? Why can't we mo mobilize and make a response for this serious and significant problem? We move on to the next slide, Emily, please. So just a quick overview, I've talked about it, and I'm gonna discuss the, the numbers of deaths that occurred during the pandemic. And then Matt's going to highlight what was done so quickly with such cooperation and collaboration and, frankly, remained nimbly responsive to new information. And finally, uh, provide some ideas to help you to consider how the lessons could be applied uh, that, that, uh, in responding to the opioid uh, mortality data. So we go on to the next slide. And the next slide. 
So there are two reports that I hope have been sent out that were prepared uh, together with the Ontario Drug Policy Research Network, ODPRN, with Tara Gomes being the lead, uh, Public Health Ontario with Pam Lease being the lead, and our office with Reagan Murray, an epidemiologist working within our office, uh, being the lead. And that took a look at the data of uh, relating to opioid mortality in the period of March 2020 to December 2020 and compared that to the year prior. And what we saw was a 76% increase. The number of deaths uh, in that period of time from March to December in the year prior was 1,162. And in the second year during the pandemic was 2,050. It's a huge number of people. And if you multiply that out to the year, we're, we're around 3,000 people dying per year from opioid related. And that is not including other substances such as methamphetamine and cocaine. So this is a, a significant problem. Nobody doesn't recognize it as that, but I really wanted people to be present or people to be present in the moment and understand what we had. Some other quick pieces of information that are important as well during the pandemic, the number of deaths that occurred when nobody was present to potentially provide naloxone or other life-saving life, uh, interventions was, uh, up, was at 73. And we saw a greater number of fentanyl-related uh, deaths and, and fentanyl now being the most significant uh, substance that's involved in opioid toxicity. And as many of you know, uh, many of you, certainly those who provide care, recognize that fentanyl has significant uh, toxicity and a limited, uh, uh, a, a very small amount can lead to significant uh, impact. And so uh, a, a small increase in the amount can, can lead to tragic and fatal outcome. And it's not very predictable in at all in the supply, uh, especially during the pandemic where the, the supply was probably impacted by the border closures and, and other changes. We also are seeing more benzodiazepines and those, again, people know, uh, but just to iterate, reiterate for those who don't, benzodiazepines not only are impactful if there's an overdose because it's not responded to naloxone, but secondarily um, with withdrawal, you'll have withdrawal both from uh, benzodiazepines and from the opioids, uh, making withdrawal even more complicated and challenging. We also saw an increased number of deaths from people or were precariously housed or ex experiencing homelessness. And uh, um, uh, the reports drill more deeply into all of these topics, but wanted to give you some of the uh, key points that were present. Next slide. And where did the deaths occur? What age? They're young people. They're really uh, significantly, um, well, majority is between 25 and 44. You can see on the bar graph, uh, the on the on your left side of the screen is a 25 to 44. It by far is the majority or a greatest proportion of the number of deaths. And you can see that the rate has substantially increased um, during the pandemic period uh, for for those ages and uh, and, and significantly uh, maintained an increase within men. So younger men are, are most significantly impacted by this. And that is why we're seeing so many life years lost and therefore life expectancy uh, decreased for sure in BC. I don't know about Ontario at this current time. And we've also seen a number of the US states where life expectancy has gone down because of opioids. If you think about this 3000 deaths in about 100,000 deaths per year, this is, this is a, a major problem of a preventable uh, death. Next slide. 
it's across Ontario. It's across jurisdictions. It's across people. It's urban. It's rural. There is a higher rate in northern Ontario, and there are a number of, of factors. Uh, again, hearkening back to the discussions that uh, that I have uh, that I'm involved with right now in, in Garden River and Sault Ste. Marie, uh, with many different uh, elders from across Ontario, uh, recognizing there is significance in, in in a number of different jurisdictions across the province. Um, but it, it really uh, is not an individual. It's uh, it, it's really everybody being impacted by this, and there's there's no uh, other. It really is everybody. Next slide. And as I talked about, uh, uh, fentanyl is really the driver of this. Uh, we are now seeing mostly um, non-pharmaceutical uh, drugs, and, uh, in, and that has uh, progressed and continued to move to uh, being non-pharmaceutical and being fentanyl. And uh, again, limited uh, window or, or a narrow window of toxicity. Um, and so with the unpredictable supply and the varying uh, percentages of different substances that may be present, it's very difficult to uh, uh, predict and, and greater risk for many that are using uh, substances. And, uh, and so we are seeing a significant increase in that. We are seeing decreased in deaths uh, from those with pharmaceutical opioids. And you will recall um, now, now about six years ago, or maybe a little bit longer, where prescribing was felt to be the solution. Um, while that may have made a benefit with uh, the pharmaceutical number of deaths, it, it clearly hasn't impacted uh, the, the increase. I remember in 2020, uh, the number of deaths that we were seeing was similar in 2019. And, and there was people saying, well, this is good. Well, there's no question it's good, but the number being similar is still over a thousand people, over 1500 people dying. So uh, it, it still um, is not, not good. It's not good at all, it's terrible. And this year, uh, what we're seeing compared to last year is uh, approximately uh, uh, around a 15% increase uh, year on year. So we still are seeing increased numbers. Uh, hasn't been as significant uh, for the first few months as it was last year, but this is early, early in the year and early information. So we're still learning and observing. The next slide. So this illustrates uh, when we looked at the healthcare utilization and there's a second study, uh, our second report, again, two reports that are in there, one talking about what we observed and then talking secondarily uh, a second report about the intersection with the medical history and the healthcare system. And this illustrates that um, during the pandemic, one in four people had interacted with the healthcare system in the week prior to their, to their death. And so there are, and, and as, as you can see in the blue, uh, outpatient visits, uh, primary care emergency uh, department visits or other hospital admissions. And so don't have exactly where they all are in this slide, but you can read the report and see greater detail that allows potential opportunity for uh, providing life-sustaining care at the moment, and then providing uh, people the opportunity to enter on the journey of recovery. Next slide. This point, I'm gonna pass over to Matt, who's gonna talk about some of the uh, amazing things that occurred during the pandemic. Great, thank you, Dirk. Uh, thanks everybody. If you can just go back one for me, just for a second. There we go. Perfect. Thank you. I don't want people to 
get distracted and dazzled with my slides before we're ready. Uh, so just a huge thank you. Uh, a couple of acknowledgements from me before we start. Uh, so, so just first picking up on where Dirk left off in his acknowledgements. It's been a great honor and privilege for me to get to know and work with Dirk. What, what might not come out uh, in our discussion today, or it, it might, because sometimes it comes out at the most inconvenient time, is that Dirk and I share a sense of humor. Uh, and uh, uh, through some pretty challenging times uh, with uh, Helen, Angus, and, and uh, David Williams, and a few others, I think a, a good laugh helped us get through some tough times. So uh, at any rate, it's been a great privilege to work with Dirk. Uh, just also uh, in line of the acknowledgement, just a, a huge shout out to families and caregivers, uh, healthcare workers, just as Dirk has said with, with respect to the opioid discussion, um, I'm going to go through a few slides here with respect to COVID-19 and our response. Um, hard to celebrate anything when it re relates to the pandemic um, and all that it's done, um, but there were some important lessons that we think might be applicable uh, as we think about how we want to respond, in this case, uh, to the situation with opioids. Uh, just by way of introduction, with respect to my role at, uh, with COVID-19, I had the tremendous, tremendous privilege of being the co-chair with Helen Angus, uh, Deputy Minister Helen Angus, and uh, uh, Chief Medical Officer David Williams for the first few waves, uh, and now a, a real pleasure to uh, continue that relationship with uh, Deputy Minister Catherine Zahn and Chief Medical Officer of Health Karen Moore. Um, and anything I know about public health, which is about this much, I've learned from them. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the pandemic and the response, uh, and just some of our lessons uh, that, that we've learned over the last while, um, and always trying to be um, conscious of uh, the, 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 the numbers underneath. And just to say that we're putting this in the context of opioids, but I think we stunned ourselves or surprised ourselves a little bit in what we could really do as a healthcare system as we move forward. So I'm gonna take you through a couple of things that I think are, we're not gonna cover every lesson, just a few that I think might be quite relevant to, to this conversation uh, this morning around opioids. So if you can give me the click, that would be great. Okay, so this is just a, a visual of our uh, testing network. Um, and uh, the, the, the main point of uh, talking about the testing network, at least in this context, was that before the pandemic, we didn't have one. Um, and we were able uh, to create over 200 specimen collection centers um, and network together uh, over 40 labs uh, to create a, a comprehensive testing network so we could offer uh, specimen collection and testing literally all over the province um, and be able to uh, deal with the, 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 the time on that. If you can give me the next slide. Uh, so this slide, just to orient you to it for the moment, this is looking at um, our volume of what we were able to process on our lab network. Uh, and you can see uh, in April of uh, 2020, uh, our volume and our capacity was at about 4,000 tests per day. Uh, and although you'll see a jiggling line along the way, we got ourselves up over 100,000. Uh, and most significantly, uh, most significantly for me, because these were the days where uh, I had the great honor of having my name thrown about um, by the Premier almost daily in terms of uh, how many tests we would be able to do per day. Um, our, our, our goal to get from April to October, so about six months, was to get from 4,000 to 45,000 um, and, and it was achieved and so on. And so, you know, here was a, a moment where we had to bring together great scale very quickly um, and very accurately. And, you know, a, a couple of the, the lessons here, um, this was not just uh, the public labs, uh, we had to get the private labs involved. Um, so this was a 
uh, public and private labs working together uh, in a, uh, uh, towards a common goal with common quality standards. We quickly put together an operating model and got uh, everybody up and running. One more on the lab. Next slide, please. Uh, so just one more on the lab. This one to tell a, a slightly different story, but same idea. This is test turnaround time. Um, and, you know, in this particular instance, uh, the, the issue was we have absolutely fantastic public health teams all across the province. If they're not getting the information in a timely fashion, um, we're undermining their ability uh, to provide great care. And this one stood out for me when I, when, uh, I first saw the, the last slide that Dirk showed um, of this idea of many of the folks who, are, who ended up with an overdose had an encounter with our healthcare system uh, relatively uh, soon prior uh, to that uh, overdose. And thinking about, hmm, you know, we figured out a way to get uh, test results from all across the province into the hands of uh, experts um, in public health management um, and do it quite reliably in the 24 and 48 hour range. You know, Imagine if we were doing that and prioritize that for the folks who were encountering our system. Now, not every encounter would necessarily have triggered something, um, but it is possible. And look at the scale, right? We were doing this with 25,000, 30,000, 40,000 events in a day. Um, and so uh, clearly uh, possible uh, if we were to apply that uh, to it, to the, the context that we're talking about this morning. Can you give me a next slide, please? Uh, just to orient you to this slide, so this was uh, looking at vaccine rates um, and looking at vaccine rates um, by age group and by uh, neighborhood risk. Um, and the, the main thing just to juxtapose, as you can, you can see on the chart, um, is uh, how we were able to prioritize age and community. Um, so again, the, the, the lesson here was uh, the, the ability to identify where resources were needed and move those resources quickly and nimbly to get in there and start to support the communities um, that uh, we, we uh, have to, we, we need to support. Um, a big shout out here to Allison Blair and Rhonda McMichael. If the folks on this call don't know those names, you should. Uh, they were absolutely fantastic uh, in putting together the kind of infrastructure and response where we could move quickly um, to get resources into the communities uh, where, where needed. I, I would also make the comment here, and, and, and it's going to be a comment sort of all the way through and probably when we get to the Q&A, one of the most important things we also did was we didn't wait for perfection. Um, so we weren't 100% sure how to, in this particular instance, how to get into particular communities. So we just went for it and tried and we worked with the community and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And those that didn't, we turned off and those that did, we expanded. And that ability of not waiting for perfection, you'll hear that a couple of times. I know we talk about it, um, but this was a really, really big part of moving forward in our response. Uh, next one, please. Uh, this slide, the, the visual, uh, I wouldn't worry too much about what's on there, except to say this is just a subset of the information and the data sets that we were able to generate um, that uh, even to today's uh, lead uh, and result in a lot of our um, uh, response. And some of the data that, that is on here now, these just, this is 10 indicators. Um, there's many, many more um, uh, in behind this. Of these 10 indicators, some of these data sources existed before the pandemic and we repurposed them. Uh, some of them existed and we didn't need to repurpose them. Some of them didn't exist at all. Uh, the key thing though, was getting this stuff up and going um, very, very quickly and understanding what the different measures uh, would be. Um, and again, the, the, the idea here was uh, uh, 
move forward, don't worry about perfection. We, we knew that some of the data wouldn't be exactly perfect. Um, for a lot of our planning, we don't need it to be exactly perfect. We need it to be directionally correct so that we could make the adjustments that we need uh, to make. Um, so this was great. And I would also say that uh, speed of setup here, um, I, I don't, I, uh, I've mentioned uh, uh, Helen Angus uh, before. Helen, uh, it was great to watch. Helen is a, uh, for those of you who know Helen, um, Helen is a, a very uh, soft-spoken leader. Um, and when people would come and she would, we would need a particular set of information and they would say that it would take more than a few months to get that up and going, she would very politely pat them on the head and send them back to the drawing board. Uh, when you're in a crisis moment, a few months is too long. Um, we were able to bring this uh, forward um, and uh, uh, move forward on how we can uh, improve the system and improve uh, the, the, the response that we've got as we go forward. So uh, just a, again, a few examples of what we were able to do to try to bring information forward. Uh, next one. Uh, so this one is on the pivot to virtual care. Um, and what just again to orient you to the slide a little bit, um, uh, you can see on the, the scale is the number of primary care visits um, and across the, the bottom of the, the time scale and the purple line is the percentage um, of uh, virtual visits. And what you see again here is in February, um, before the pandemic, virtual visits stayed as a very small part of our primary care response or primary care uh, function, it shoots up and then it starts to correct. And, and a couple of things of why we wanted to bring this one forward as, again, something that we may want to consider as we go forward. First is, uh, uh, note the concept of course correct. Uh, so as you can see over time, we're figuring out, um, we the primary care system is figuring out what's that right mix. Uh, certainly virtual care has an important role to play going forward. Um, Certainly uh, where we were went a little too high. What's that right spot? But we didn't wait for perfection in order to do this. The second is this was a new model of care. Um, this was a new way of providing uh, services, at least at this kind of scale. So uh, an ability to adjust, to make changes as quickly as possible to try to move forward uh, is what we uh, are showing here. And the adjustments to practice that can be made um, as we move forward. So those are just a handful of lessons that we've learned um, as we go forward. And, and now to see, is there a way in which we can support uh, the great efforts that have been going on uh, around uh, trying to support people uh, with substance abuse, substance use, can we take some of these lessons and support that change? I'm gonna hand it back to Dirk. Thanks, Matt. The, um, if you can move on to the next slide, that would be great. So, what have we done and what, what do we, we still have lots more to do. And, uh, and Zoe, um, welcome to the talk. Haven't seen you for a while or talked with you. Uh, Zoe Dodd, I think everybody should read in the chat Zoe's comments, uh, very poignant and, and, and valuable points and perspectives that she has shared for, with us in the chat, but she has shared for many years and, uh, and uh, a leader and somebody who has been uh, really making all efforts in all different ways to try to raise this topic for for all of us to understand and, and to, to make a difference with so Zoe thanks for thanks for sharing that com those comments um, so from our our perspective now back in 2017 we recognized we couldn't 
even give the numbers. We weren't able to talk about the number of people that were dying. We knew there was significance, but we weren't able to share share data in a, in a timely and in, a, in an effective way and, and, and understand the deaths to, the, uh, to a greater extent. So we introduced a, an approach that allowed us to systematically uh, learn about those that died and provide the ability to bring uh, the understanding of those deaths into a process of ag aggregated analysis uh, to be able to see and illustrate trends and patterns. Uh, so that was early, earlier, a number of years ago. And now we're trying to integrate the learnings from that into our uh, provincially into many different case management, uh, case, case investigations and have a timely system of IT case management, which we, we introduced over the past year during the pandemic. We're in the process right now of revising and looking at uh, the um, looking at the approach to um, better and higher quality death investigations more generally to uh, uh, develop a, a service delivery model that allows coroners uh, uh, approach to death investigation to be uh, more consistent across the province and to be um, aligned with uh, service level uh, understanding and expectations. So that work is ongoing. We've just introduced a, uh, a new unit that does uh, takes the, the goal is to take the death investigation uh, information and to look for trend identification um, not only in opioids but other other circumstances to be able to transfer that and to inform impactful recommendations so we continue to uh, take steps to improve our own organization to be able to best understand uh, death and learning from those deaths and be able to share those in places where they can be most impactful. Uh, next slide. So the next slide talks about um, the what has happened and there was a expert panel that uh, that the Center of Excellence with uh, the Ontario Health, the Mental Health and Addiction Center of Excellence, which uh, was pulled together in uh, 2021 where there was a, a, an expert working group that looked at the substance use disorder. And they uh, compiled a list of recommendations that had both immediate, well, immediate short-term, medium-term and long-term actions for the sector. And uh, many of those did align with uh, some of the strategies that have been talked about during the COVID pandemic. Uh, for example, connecting service providers across the continuum, looking at a continuum of care uh, throughout, uh, targeted outreach, for those uh, populations at higher risk, virtual care to get more rapid access and uh, developing a uh, focused strategy for data and analytics. And so while we, we know that according to the, the expert panel indicates, well, we know what we need to do and what are outlined in their recommendations, know the tools and strategies to use, know that rapid progress is, uh, is possible. It's really, what can we do um, now to be able to uh, bring together, uh, learn from information from those who have shared with us before, as I talked about, and also um, move forward to mobilize uh, a systematic and uh, cross uh, the continuum of care response to be able to reduce this terrible tragedy. So I'll pass back to Matt on the next slide. Thanks, Dirk. Um, and so, a couple of uh, a couple of thoughts as we bring this together um, and think about what can what can we do as a system um, and how do we respond. 
Uh, and what we're uh, considering here is we think about the recommendations that have come forward. Um, and to, to, to Dirk's point, uh, we, we know what needs to move forward. Can we do it faster? Can we do it in, at a pandemic speed? Um, we certainly have seen that uh, province-wide coordination is possible um, and including and very importantly, uh, not just the health system, uh, looking at uh, municipal systems, the private sector as well. Uh, we were able to do that uh, in COVID. Let's, let's do that here um, in, in this response. Uh, I've already mentioned uh, the speed to implement um, and getting information uh, out and available and really trying to make sure that we're comfortable with the idea that uh, we're going, going to have to iterate on that. Um, and one of our challenges and one of the things that, that certainly has, was a challenge through COVID um, was the idea that we would wait until all of the data was perfect and everybody was in alignment. And the, the concept is let's try to move and, and put action uh, ahead. Same with the rapid research synthesis. And this is one of the things in a, a huge uh, compliment to, uh, to David Williams, to, to Kieran Moore, uh, to our public health folks. You know, in COVID, uh, the uh, information and the science was changing. Um, there were different things that were coming forward and there wasn't always agreement, um, uh, certainly not on Twitter uh, and on other places, but we still moved forward. We took the best information we had uh, and did what we could with those findings uh, and, and move forward on that basis. We did also schedule updates uh, and, you know, it was a bit challenging at times um, when, uh, the, the response would pivot, um, would move to a different path. I think about, and just as an example, uh, when we would change testing criteria. Uh, changing testing criteria was a very, very difficult process. It was confusing for the public. Uh, there was some backlash, but you have to move with what the research is telling you, what your best evidence is, and not wait until everybody is in total agreement, um, which tends to be a problem for us uh, in other parts of our, of our system. Uh, moving to real-time intervention capability, um, have already commented on where we might be able to go with that and take some of the lessons, you know, when we think about uh, uh, from a COVID response, being able to uh, uh, put in place uh, in, within a few months, uh, a system that was able to provide information at both an individual and a community-based level Typically, that data was available within uh, about 48 hours. Uh, even at worst, it would have been a week. Um, and so those are the kinds of things that we're going to need to make sure we support if we really want to make the change here and support the, the wonderful recommendations that have come forward from the experts. And then finally, you know, it, it, there has to be an expansion of services. Um, and so it, it's not just an idea of uh, re reorganizing a few things. And you know, to Dirk's uh, comment, this has been on the table for a while. I know many have been pushing on this. We have to do it. Um, that's what we did uh, within the COVID response. The one nuance that I would add here uh, that uh, uh, maybe has been talked about, but, but certainly was a key part of the response from, uh, from a COVID perspective, was the design provincially, but implement locally. Um, and the, uh, again, maybe I'll, I'll use the, the, the testing example, although we could use IMS structures, we could look at what we did with things called MEST teams within uh, long-term care, um, but we always set, here's the overall direction, here's the, the, the numbers or the, the outcome that we were looking for, uh, but then over to local teams to figure out what's the best way to do that and achieve that uh, within their environment. Uh, so again, taking some of those things, um, and seeing if uh, in combination, we can start to remove some of the barriers that have been in that way from making progress on this important issue. 
Uh, again, uh, so we're going to end there. We're going to go to the questions. I'll, I'll reiterate from Dirk's perspective. First is uh, uh, we talked about numbers and we talked about uh, ideas and, and successes. And at no point would we ever want to forget the human cost that is underneath all of this. Uh, it's very near and dear to me as a person um, and uh, uh, something that we have to be aware of. Second is, is and I said off the top of my talk, it, it always feels weird uh, to be talking about positive things coming out of the pandemic. Um, it, it's just a difficult concept for me personally and a difficult concept for many. Um, so we're not really saying positive things, but lessons, things that we think have changed the game and how we approach things as a healthcare system. And can we now take those lessons and apply them more broadly, particularly to the crisis point that we have in, with opioids? Uh, and with that, uh, I'll pause there uh, and we'll go to questions, which apparently uh, I will, we, we will ask, I, I'm going to ask Dirk the first one that's on the list. Uh, for context, uh, how do deaths from opioids compare to deaths from smoking, motor vehicle accidents, etc.? Oh, thanks, Matt. Um, and uh, the, <clears throat> excuse me. So if we look at the number of deaths in Ontario annually from uh, car crashes would be approximately 600. Uh, smoking um, is uh, with all of the complications related to cancer, emphysema, high, uh, cardiac is estimated to be around 16,000. And then if we think of the number of homicides uh, in Ontario and think of the resources and the commitment and the uh, public awareness, it's approximately 300 deaths uh, in Ontario. So recognizing uh, the significance as numbers go, so 3,000 compared to 300, <clears throat> but also the, the significant importance of the number of life years lost for, these, uh, for, for people who are young, uh, people who are dying from a preventable disease or illness, not disease, preventable um, cause. And so important that uh, we reflect on this from more than a, a single perspective. Uh, 300 was from homicide. Thanks, Dirk. Uh, next one we have is from Rebecca. Um, you mentioned we struggle to respond and mobilize. How is Ontario Health supporting that and breaking silos? So probably I should take that one, Dirk, I would say. Uh, so uh, um, I think what we saw in the pandemic um, was, uh, as, and maybe some of you uh, saw as well, um, things like our, uh, our IMS structures um, and our uh, work within the regional tables, um, where we bring together folks from different uh, sectors, I, I guess we can call that, um, to, to uh, troubleshoot how we move forward. One of the key things that we want to do, of course, uh, is move forward uh, as strongly as possible on the Ontario Health Team agenda. Um, and the Ontario Health Team agenda, which looks at how do we get uh, a, a bundle of uh, uh, resources and into a community so the community can respond um, in ways to keep people healthy, look at the preventative care aspect of it uh, as compared to funding individual agencies for tasks or things that they need to do. Um, so it's a, a, a brilliant and important concept. Um, and that will be the, the structural way that we would do it. Um, but internally, or in the meantime, is making sure that when we have our planning tables uh, and when we're looking at resources, uh, how we can look at it across, across uh, silos and across systems. 
Um, just one last example on that for me per personally, I have an advisory, a health system advisory group um, that represent folks from all sectors. Um, and for me as well, I've been very fortunate in that we have uh, uh, people attending who aren't really from uh, under the eye, under the, uh, the oversight of Ontario Health. Um, so public health, uh, people from public health uh, uh, assist with the planning, um, primary care, and we do have to start to think of ourselves in that fashion, right? Um, and one of the comments that I made earlier in this is that if we stand and we say, well, this is this is this group is funded this way, this group is funded this way, and this group is funded this way, and therefore the groups aren't going to be planning together, I think we're in, in real challenge, uh, and we're going to have to move past that. Uh, the next question, um, there's a question here again from Rebecca from Viva Google. I do not really answer this. Do you know that? Dirk, would you yep. be able to answer this? Okay, I'll read it out. Yep. Uh, Viva Google and the Pan-Canadian Data Strategy talks about poor data sharing. How are you addressing that? How are you sharing your data and ensuring its access? Oh, I, not speaking specifically about the Pan-Canadian Data Strategy, but uh, the, the conversation that uh, was, I'm aware of those discussions. From our perspective, uh, what we do is uh, our data is, uh, shared on a regular basis. Uh, we, we share monthly with the substance related harm with the public health units across Ontario. Uh, we also uh, share regularly with, uh, with uh, other, other system partners, other people that are involved. And uh, we uh, have our, our we, do the, we do the two reports, which will be included in here. So our data is open and available and accessible uh, uh, in response. And also uh, we share uh, proactively on, uh, and we also have, it's uh, a present on the Public Health Ontario website. There's a tracker, opioid related tracker, ODPRN separate from us, um, does a number of publications and uh, and and really and releases those and publicly uh, puts them forward. Great, thanks. Maybe I'll, I'll just add that um, uh, likewise, uh, um, we, we absolutely have the as we did with uh, COVID, getting the data out in the public domain um, and making sure that everybody can see that, have access to it um, was a critical part of the strategy um, and needs to be here or or any other main uh, large change initiative that we want to move forward on. Uh, Next one is for me uh, from Zoe. Uh, how would a healthcare system be responsive to people who use drugs, who use recreationally, since a large number of people who died not labeled with a substance use issue died? Um, so I, if I understand the question correctly, um, uh, in the case of uh, COVID, where we were able to take a positive test and identify through that positive test and then do a trigger, um, in, in the instances that you're describing, there, would, there wouldn't be that front end element to it. So I guess I would say a couple of things to that. Um, first is, is that where there is um, and where we have that opportunity to intervene, we should, um, and we should be making sure that we've got the systems that are able to do that. I think you speak more broadly though to a, a public health strategy and, and a uh, prevention strategy uh, and looking at how do we communicate better um, and how do we drive some of those changes uh, and try to, uh, through education and through prevention uh, techniques for those who um, are using recreationally um, and, and see if that would make a difference in supporting them. Dirk, did you wanna add into that? No, I think, uh, no, not specifically. Okay. Uh, got one here from Renato Desenza. Hi, Dirk and Matt, thanks for all the work uh, your teams are doing. The opioid crisis has some genesis in the legitimate healthcare system. Um, are we, looking at the pain management system 
uh, clinics, quality standards, et cetera. The approach seems a bit scattered between clinics, mental health, and primary care. Reforms to prescription guidelines may not be enough. Do you want to take a first shot at that, Dirk, and then I can add? Sure. I think, uh, Renato, you, you've illustrated and amplified some of the conversation that's occurred uh, in the chat. And uh, the focus on prescribing um, hasn't um, it isn't the solution. And there are, are many other things that need to be considered as uh, when there was prescribing, there was the potential impact on pain management. And so that, as you say, um, was impacted in that way. There are, there are uh, people that have specific expertise and, uh, and um, that are approaching this. And, and I don't have all of the details into it, it, back into the treatment area, which is outside of my specific knowledge. Uh, but I know that there, this is something that's recognized and uh, recognizing, again, that the prescription guidelines was not the solution to uh, this, this very uh, more complex and challenging issue. And, and again, I encourage everybody to read the chat. We won't have the opportunity to answer all of the comments in there, but they're very important and impactful and insightful and valuable and necessary things to read. Great. So thank you very much, everybody. Thank you for the comments as well in, in the chat. Uh, we do have a number of folks on from Ontario Health, uh, from the uh, Mental Health and Addiction Center of Excellence. So uh, all very helpful um, on the feedback uh, and on the questions. So thank you. And thank you for taking the time this morning.